This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Susan Powell's 27th birthday was, by most any estimation, a disaster. She arrived home from a long day at work at 10.30 p.m. to find her house a mess. Toys and clothes belonging to her two young sons were scattered about the living room. Dirty dishes, measuring spoons, and sippy cups decked the kitchen counter. The cake her husband had baked sat unfrosted next to them. Batter splattered onto the vinyl floor was slowly drying into a crust. Josh Powell sat at his computer watching Saturday Night Live clips on the internet. The 2008 presidential election loomed in less than a month. He loved the sketches that lampooned GOP running mates John McCain and Sarah Palin. He took pride in being blue in the red state of Utah and often started political arguments with his conservative neighbors. When his wife came through the door, exhausted from a 10 and a half hour shift on the phones at Wells Fargo Investments, he suggested she go into the kitchen and finish frosting her cake. Instead, Susan cleaned. She wiped up the spills. She put away the toys. At least, she reasoned to herself as she plunged her hands into soapy dishwater, her good-for-nothing husband had managed to put the kids down to bed. The next morning, Susan took three-year-old Charlie and one-year-old Braden to a small neighborhood carnival put on by her church. She returned home to find the cake, at last, frosted. Josh presented her with the gifts he had purchased. He handed one to Charlie to give to Susan and mumbled, You better not complain because I spent money on this. She opened the present and was instantly disappointed. It was a small whiteboard calendar, the kind of thing you hang on the refrigerator and fill in with appointments and reminders using a dry erase marker. It had a lavender background emblazoned with flower graphics. The edges were finished with a plastic that had yellowed to the color of custard, as if it had sat for months in a bargain bin. Deflated, Susan handed her toddler a $25 gift card she had won at work and told him to give it to Josh. Instead of receiving gifts on her birthday, she was giving them. Happy birthday from Mommy to Daddy in the house, Charlie said. Resentment festered in Susan. Her husband never hesitated to spend money on himself, but he nitpicked every dollar she spent. He'd even locked her out of their joint bank account. She went to the store and bought some yogurt, and he's like, oh, it's 50 cents less here, or, you know, five cents less here. You know, he'd chew her out and stuff and be upset, and then he'd change the password so she could get back in there, and, you know, just things like that. And so she did things behind his back. That is Linda Bagley, one of Susan's closest work friends. She's never shared her story publicly before now. They'd bought in this case of chili because it was such a good price. But she was so tired of eating chili for lunch. So I came in and I had the, the little 33 cent, 50 cent cup of noodles. And she had taken one out of my drawer and put a can of chili in there. It says trade. That's <laughs> like the can of chili was probably more expensive than the little cup of noodles. But she was mm-hmm. just so tired of the chili because they got a good deal on it. And they had so much they had to eat it. You know. Two days after Susan's letdown of a birthday, she and Josh paid a visit to the home of Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves. Josh's mom, Teresa, gave Susan a bathrobe, of which she already owned three. Josh handed her another small present as well, raising her hopes. Maybe, just maybe, he had secretly held something back to make it a surprise. She tore off the gift wrap and found a pair of DVDs. 
they were religious videos, available for next to nothing through their church. A few days later, Susan vented to a friend about the letdown in a Facebook message. Here's what she wrote. Cheap whiteboard and the DVDs probably cost a buck each. I actually asked him why he liked to torment me by acting like it's not important and dragging things out. Huge letdown. Over the years of their marriage, Susan had become quite used to receiving underwhelming gifts. He's given me chocolate, stuffed animals, a glass vase with fake flowers, a peridot necklace for Christmas 2006. I know it must have been on clearance and cheap. Who buys that unless you have an August birthstone? I think the cake mix and frosting cost the same as my actual present. Wow, I'm bitter. She had good reason to be. Yet, she swallowed her hurt and mounted the whiteboard calendar on the side of the refrigerator. Susan excelled at making the best of a bad situation. <laughs> Josh is mean to me, but only because I was mean to him, and then he was mean back to me, so I was mean to him more. And now he's being mean to me again. But I still love him, even though he won't kiss me. Maybe I'll be nice and make dinner. Maybe. Maybe I'll let him take pictures of me with his new Maxim 7 he's getting. Maybe. And maybe he'll deserve and earn and actually get his Valentine's Day gift. Maybe. Depends what he does for me. This is Cold, Episode 3. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com plus and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else. Do you ever feel like you just need some support to get really healthy? Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. And I'm Melanie Douglas. I'm on a journey to find lasting health in my everyday life. And I'm here to help. We'll find fun, doable ways to improve your health through small and simple changes. It's the Really Healthy Podcast. Subscribe for free on iTunes or the KSL News Radio app. Faith and Finances. I'm Dave Cauley. Bubbling bitterness in Josh and Susan's marriage went from a slow simmer to a full roiling boil during 2008. Case in point, this October entry in Susan's journal. I feel like a prisoner in my own family, fighting to practice my own religion and beliefs in my own home. I can't believe our marriage deteriorated so quickly. I feel so blind and naive and foolish. I cherish my boys, but realize they'll grow up and move on. Josh found a part-time job doing web development for a trucking company called Aspen Logistics. Though he had no formal training in the field, he had taught himself enough to do the work. He dabbled in web design in his free time as well, even forming a company, Polished Marketing LLC. When his younger brother Michael ran for a seat in the Washington State Legislature in 2008, it was Polished Marketing that built the campaign website. 
Mike ran as a Democrat and actually made it through the primary before losing in the general election. Josh's company didn't do much business. The only item listed on the polished marketing website's portfolio was a site Josh had built for a community Cinco de Mayo celebration. In other words, his side hustle was a flop. Susan brought home the lion's share of their income. Josh insisted her paycheck be deposited into a joint account to which he alone controlled access. She'd gone along with this approach throughout their marriage, but started to push back in 2008. She set up a personal account in secret and started diverting small portions of her check there. She used that money to pay tithing, to buy food for her boys, and to pay down a debt owed to her parents. Josh and Susan frequently fought over faith and finances. She had a quick temper and often sniped at Josh. She urged him to help care for their two boys or to help clean up around the house. She nagged him about not living up to his religious vows. Josh and Susan were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Josh had quit attending church meetings three years earlier. Susan had kept on only to have her husband mock her faith. He called her names, chastised her for spending money, and refused to touch her for months at a time. Susan complained about Josh to anyone who would listen. Here's what she said in one Facebook message to a friend. He's mainly emotionally, verbally, and financially abusive. Basically, I'm a single mother with this guy that lives with me and dictates to me what I can do in my spare time and takes my paycheck and spends the money. Susan wondered if she was going crazy. At times, she thought Josh might be bipolar, like his brother John. Johnny was at the time living in a group home in Washington State. Other times, Susan questioned if she might be experiencing a clinical depression. She sought counseling, but felt it wouldn't do much good if Josh wouldn't agree to take part as well. He went once or twice and then gave up. They argued about everything, like which kind of peanut butter to buy because of a price difference of a few pennies per ounce. Their disagreements tended to explode into shouting matches. They fought in public, in front of friends, or even the babysitter. Susan sometimes coped by walking away. She'd go to a friend's house and spend a few hours cooling off. But that approach didn't always work. During one argument, she slapped Josh. He didn't strike her back, but warned it would be the only time he would restrain himself. Susan told a friend in a Facebook message she took that threat of violence seriously. He's justified that if I'm yelling in his face or hitting him, that he thinks no matter what other men of authority say, that it's okay to hit me back. So yes, that's always in the back of my mind. But lately, I've even picked up the phone and said, I'm calling 911 and he takes the phone out of my hands, or immediately backs away, and then tries to make me look like the crazy, irrational one. During another fight, Susan locked herself inside a closet and refused to respond to anything Josh said. It was the same coping strategy Josh's ex-girlfriend Catherine had used when she'd experienced his rage a decade before. To look at Susan then, you wouldn't have labeled her a victim of abuse. She didn't wear telltale bruises on her skin that would have branded her as a battered wife. Her parents knew better. During a trip to Washington in June, Chuck and Judy Cox gave their daughter a cell phone, one she could keep secret from her husband. They told her to use it if she ever needed to escape in the middle of the night with the boys. I was there, was able to attend one of the sessions with her counselor, and she said, well, yeah, you are abused. 
and say, Dad, is that right? I said, yes, it is. I believe so. I think she's right on. Chuck told Susan she should never have married Josh. It was clear that she was abused emotionally and verbally. And physically, in the extent of not providing the food, the needed food, because she wouldn't eat because so the kids could eat, because uh, it, it was a choice she had to make. Susan told friends in emails and Facebook messages that she was bracing for a divorce. Here's just one example from August of 2008. I am so tempted to just find a lawyer, write up some papers and change the locks, and have a police officer with me when he comes home from work. Either he is that scared of counseling and I need to deliver the unspoken counseling or divorce, or he thinks he can weasel his way out and I'll stupidly endure this miserable marriage. Well, he is wrong. Susan did contact a divorce attorney, in secret, for advice. But she worried Josh would turn a divorce against her, leaving her with no home, no car, and no access to her boys. Friends offered to shelter Susan if she needed to disappear. Susan knew that for all of his faults, Josh was very clever and very calculating. She said he would find her no matter where she went. She also feared he might run off with Charlie and Braden, taking them to live with the father-in-law she despised or even skipping the country with them. Worse yet, she thought he might try to have her killed. Josh had maxed out Susan's credit cards before declaring bankruptcy in 2007. He'd bought toys and tools, then used the court to wipe away the debt. Afterward, he ran up her credit again, figuring he could just declare bankruptcy again if needed. Josh had bought a car for Susan to drive, but financed it in his name alone, using the excuse of needing to rebuild his credit. They had two cars, but he got rid of the second car, supposedly claiming that it was going to save on gas, but I think now it was very much a way to control where she went and who she did anything with. Susan's friend Kiersey Hellowell said that meant Susan had to make her 15-mile round-trip commute by bicycle. Her daily ride ran along 5600 West, a busy road that cuts through an industrial park. For long stretches of the route, Susan had to ride in the narrow space between the fog line and the edge of the pavement, with semi-trucks blowing past her at 50 miles per hour. Though they had almost no assets to speak of, Josh pushed Susan to obtain five-year term life insurance. He first purchased her a half-million-dollar policy with New York Life in June of 2007. In March of 2008, he bumped it up to a full million. He was, of course, the sole beneficiary. Josh also took out a million-dollar policy on himself and added a quarter million for each of his boys. Susan later confided to a co-worker in an email she feared for her safety. I was worth a million dollars dead and biking to work. You tell me how easy it would be to have an accident. I guess our main problem is I feel like I'm just an asset to be controlled. I make the money. I take care of the house and kids and put up with his crap. He could easily take me out. So yeah, I was worried. With both Josh and Susan working, they needed to put the boys in daycare. Josh looked online and found Debbie Caldwell, a woman who ran an in-home daycare in their area. Oddly enough, I was, had taken a week off and I was up at uh, LDS girls camp with the girls. And when I came back down, I had something like 30 messages from this Josh pal on my phone. Josh wanted to meet Debbie. And then we did schedule an interview to which he showed up an hour and a half late too. Susan came along as well. And she pulled me aside and she said, she asked me, 
specifically, you know, if she had to change her work schedule, would that be a problem? And I said, no, this, when I take children in, the slot's theirs, and they could use it, you know, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., regardless, the slot is there. They're paying for the slot. And uh, she said she was, she may have to change her schedule because that they were not doing well in their marriage, and she was talking to an attorney and looking at getting a divorce. So she even told me that straight up front the first day I met her and I assured her that the spot would be hers no matter what her schedule was that I would provide the care for the boys. Susan took out a blue pen and started writing on a sheet of college rule lined paper while at work on a Saturday in late June. Across the top margin she wrote the words last will and testament for Susan. What then followed was an indictment of her domestic situation. I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work which would not be accessible to my husband. I want it documented somewhere that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. He has threatened to skip the country and told me straight out, if we divorce, There will be no lawyers, only a mediator, and I will ruin you. Your life will be over, and the boys will not grow up with a mom and dad. If something happens to me, please talk to my sister-in-law, Jenny Graves, my friend, Kiersey Hallowell. Check my blogs on MySpace. Check my work desk. Talk to my friends, coworkers, and family. It is an open fact that we have life insurance policies of over a million if we die in the next four years. Coworkers, family, and friends hear me say this occasionally. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. I want my parents, Judy and Chuck Cox, very involved and in charge of their lives. I love my boys. I live for them. And I choose not to cheat or do drugs because I wouldn't want to risk losing them. Susan added her signature at the bottom and then, in the margin added a note to her boys. I love you, Charlie and Brayden, and I'm sorry you've seen how wrong and messed up our marriage is. I would never leave you. Susan folded the page in thirds and slid it into a makeshift envelope formed out of another sheet of lined paper. She stapled the whole thing closed, then spelled out a special set of instructions on the outer face. For family, friends of Susan, all except for Josh Powell, husband. I don't trust him. Josh Powell is not allowed to possess this. The night before, Josh and Susan had gone through the worst fight of their marriage to date. It was a doozy. It had rocked Susan so badly, she dictated the blow-by-blow to her friend Kiersey. The result was a document titled The Deposition. It said Josh complained because Susan sometimes spent more on groceries than promised. He ordered her to memorize the weekly supermarket ads and buy only the cheapest items. She asked why he was able to spend money freely when she could not. He told her it was none of her business what he spent. Kiersey wrote Josh had called Susan a religious freak for wanting to pay tithing and sing in the church choir. When she pushed back, he offered to give her a $50 monthly allowance out of her own paycheck, from which she could make a $5 tithe. Susan kept both the deposition and her last will and testament in a drawer at her work. About a month later, she added something else. And I am documenting all our assets, 
just in case of any emergencies, fire, flood, damage, disputes. While Josh was away from home one day in July, Susan took a camcorder and walked through their house. So, we've got this treadmill. What you're hearing is Susan's actual voice. Charlie, say hi. She documented Josh's extensive collection of power tools. This is all stuff bought in a year or less through Home Depot on my credit. Josh bought a lot of stuff and then he had to bankrupt it. And then he bought a little bit more on my credit. She cataloged his toys. Hover Storm, you bought a stupid hovercraft remote control toy. Oh, there's his RC car. It's pretty pimped out. And see that stuff. I think he's got probably a 3,000 worth of supplies in the RC car world. She walked through the garden, showing obvious pride in the variety of food growing there. Our peach tree, our cherry tree, smaller ones a pluot tree, apple, pear. Oh, we got pumpkin. And watermelon and cantaloupe, squash, zucchini, uh, eggplant, cucumbers, okra, peppers, radishes, the peas I planted didn't grow, those two rows are empty, oh, it's being watered right now, more peppers, tomatoes, corn, raspberries out in the back, all of those are the tomatoes. These are weeds or some type of plant that transplanted. Through much of the recording, Susan's voice carried a defeated, almost ominous tone. And tools galore. More tools galore. Here are all the paperwork and the tools he bought. But she never mentioned the word divorce. Uh, this is me. July 29th, 2008. It is 1233 Mountain Time. Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. A week later, Susan obtained a safe deposit box at a Wells Fargo bank branch down the street from her work. She made clear Josh was not allowed to access it. Into the box, she placed copies of social security cards and birth certificates for herself and her boys, U.S. savings bonds, receipts showing bank account balances, and other documents that could prove critical in the case of a divorce. Susan's nightmare birthday the one with the unfrosted cake and underwhelming gifts, came and went in October. Still, she dreamed of expanding their family, adding a baby girl. Here's what she wrote about that in a Facebook message. When Josh bought that cake and frosting, there was pink. And I asked, oh, is this for when I have a baby girl? Still feel like I'm dreaming in that aspect, but I'm starting to play my cards and get my way, so... I'm not so celibate anymore, at least. Josh's older sister, Jennifer, couldn't understand why her brother seemed so fixated on controlling Susan. I mean, they were married for quite a while, and he didn't ever come to that realization that she could be a strong, wonderful, independent woman and still be 
a wonderful, loving wife and mother completely on the same page with their goals together. She, she was so amazing. They would have gone far if he had embraced that, but he wouldn't recognize that. That November, Susan spent an entire day at a temple praying for guidance. Latter-day Saints believe their temples are sacred spaces where individuals who are worthy can receive inspiration directly from heaven. They are also where the faith's most sacred rites are performed, like the marriage for time and all eternity into which Josh and Susan had entered in April of 2001. But Josh no longer had a temple recommend. That's a card that grants Latter-day Saints access to their temples. They're only issued to members who affirm they're obeying church doctrine. So Susan went to the temple alone. While there, she had chance interactions with two single men. She later wrote to a friend saying, those episodes left her with a peaceful feeling. I think the Lord was telling me there are other righteous men out there for me if my husband chooses not to be. But she also had the impression Josh remained her eternal companion. She told another friend on Facebook she felt it was her duty to guide him back to the light. My parents are just gung-ho ready to help pay for a divorce attorney. And everyone thinks it's so easy to leave and magically start from scratch. I fear everyone will be disappointed in me if I stay. While sitting in the temple, Susan pulled out a pen and a small notebook. She started to write. I am not threatening a divorce, but what you ask of me is too great to bear. You must understand that my religion is a part of me. You can't ask me to pick and choose only certain parts of it to live and expect me to be happy. When we got married, the gospel was the center of our marriage and our family. I have to ask myself now, was this an act? Were you just pretending? In my heart, I think the answer is no. But you've chosen to forget all of this and have been influenced to a negative outlook in life. When she arrived home, Susan typed the message into the computer. It was about 2,000 words, the equivalent of three typed pages. She printed out the letter and handed it to Josh. In a Facebook message, she told a friend he did not take it well. We had a two-hour screaming fight last night. I got him to see some of my perspectives, and he said he might be willing to start going to church, but it really seems like he's digging in his heels on not paying tithing. Obviously, Josh did not intend to change. Susan no longer intended to compromise. But she still couldn't bring herself to file divorce papers. In early 2009, Josh told Susan they needed to make sure the boys would be covered if something bad were to happen. Instead of divorce papers, they signed paperwork establishing the Joshua S. Powell and Susan M. Powell Revocable Trust on February 4th. It's a day that sticks in the minds of Susan's friends, Kiersey and Debbie. The day that I met Debbie, she called me and she said, we're at a lawyer's office setting up this life insurance thing in a trust for the boys and I need you to go pick them up at Debbie's house because Josh is taking forever arguing about every detail and trying to put the legal things into this agreement and the lawyer keeps telling him, no, we can't, no, you can't. It's not legal. You can't do that. No, you can't say that. So can you please go get them for me and keep them until I get back? Well, and that's the day I met Debbie. If Susan were to die, the trust gave control of her assets to Josh. If they were both killed, Susan's dad and Josh's brother, Michael, would co-manage the trust on behalf of their boys. But in the case of Susan's death alone, Josh would get the power to erase Chuck Cox as a trustee. Josh also had Susan sign forms granting him power of attorney for her retirement accounts. 
he gained full authority to buy or sell investments in her name or cash them out without needing her permission. Debbie could not believe it. And I said to her, I said, Susan, that's ridiculous. You guys do not need that kind of um, life insurance. Why are you doing that? And she says, well, because Josh wants to. And you looked at her and you said, Susan, you're worth more dead than alive. I did. I did say that to her. Susan told a coworker in an email, Josh could pull the plug if she were ever on life support. Her work friends, like Linda Bagley, were aghast. She mentioned one time about him having, insisting that they open the accounts, IRA accounts, and fund them fully, borrowing against their credit cards, and um, that he had full power of attorney, and he wanted to make sure that that full power of attorney meant that he could take money out without her signing anything, that he had the authorization to do that. And so that's what he had. The legal framework for Josh's life post-Susan was falling into place. Still, she held on to that handwritten last will and testament, hidden in a drawer at work. She later told a coworker in an email that their family trust obviously overrode that will. Now I feel like I should and could get rid of this stuff, but I'm reluctant to do it because I guess I don't feel totally in the clear yet. Linda Bagley told me there was good reason for that. Yeah, she came to me and she told me at one point, at least six to 10 months before she disappeared, probably sometime in 2009, she said, if Josh, if something ever happens to me, make sure they look at Josh, basically. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, has he threatened you or, or whatever? And, um, and so she said, well, no, but it's just the way he talks. One time, Linda went to visit Susan at home and found Josh in the living room. A news report about a recent murder was on TV. Josh made a comment about how he'd be able to get away with murder. All he'd have to do is make sure the police couldn't find the body. The next day, she came to me and she says, see, see, he makes this kind of comments and that, you know, that kind of... So she was concerned that maybe he would do something and she had a folder at work and a journal at work that she kept some of these suspicions and she wanted to make sure that I knew that it was there and she told a couple other co-workers about it. Two days after signing the trust paperwork, Josh, Susan, and the boys headed out for a nearly month-long trip to Washington. They'd been on the road for about nine hours and had just braved a snow squall on I-84 when they stopped for gas in the town of Pendleton, Oregon. The station attendant told them their tire was flat and called for a tow. Thankfully, they were able to patch the tire and continue on through a thick fog, arriving safely in Puyallup a few hours later. The drive home at the end of February proved even more eventful. They spent one night at a motel in the Tri-Cities area of eastern Washington, sharing a room with Josh's dad. Susan didn't want to be anywhere near Steve, so she later wrote that she spent the night alone in the minivan. It wasn't too bad, but about the last four hours, I awoke every hour to check my watch and had weird dreams that people were outside my van window like police or Josh's brother. And I know that didn't happen, so I finally went in at 5.30 a.m. Steve Powell wrote in his own journal he believed Susan remained outside that night because she was afraid of her own overwhelming sexual attraction for him. The Washington trip seemed to recharge Susan in spite of that bad night of sleep. 
she had reached a grudging deal with Josh. He would attend church meetings one Sunday a month, while she would miss church once a month. She did damage control with her friends and family after getting back to Utah, telling them in emails and Facebook messages that her marital situation, it had improved. Today is our eight-year anniversary. In my soul and heart, I know that Josh and I will stay married. He's putting forth efforts to change when I push him and even when I don't. Josh also re-engaged with his wife, physically. Sort of. We are getting a bit better as far as affection goes, but unfortunately it's only in the bedroom. He's still too afraid to ever kiss and hug me or hold hands, so that's still annoying. That little hint of physical intimacy kept Susan's dreams of having a daughter alive. I want to have that third pregnancy. Notice I didn't say third child because I'm still holding out that I'll have twins. I feel like I'm being selfish to put off another just because I don't have the perfect marriage yet. But I know overall, it's good. It'll work. She expanded on that in an email a week later. Things really are better than before. But just about every time I say or think that, my husband says or does something that still manages to blow me out of the water. And I question if I want to add another child to this. In fact, Susan's messages show she suspected several times through 2009 that she might be pregnant. She made no secret of it with work friends like Linda Bagley. She was also talking about maybe trying for another child. And I think maybe she thought that would make a little bit of a difference in keeping together the marriage as well. And um, But Josh was always super against the idea. So finally, one, one day she came to me and said, uh, he said, okay, let's try. Josh's little concessions were bait that kept Susan on the hook. There were ample signs throughout 2009 that he hadn't made any significant personal changes. He reneged on the go-one-week-skip-one-week church agreement within just a couple of months. We used to go to Temple weekly in Washington, and now he's annoyed if I want to say prayer for dinner. And it's not all religious stuff. His character and personality has really swung to an extreme, too. I'm constantly reminding him to rein it back. Josh continued to show little regard for his wife. When weather kept Susan from riding her bike to work, he would drop her off or make her carpool with co-workers. Rarely was Susan allowed to take the minivan herself. Josh frequently failed to pick her up from work in the afternoon, or get the boys from Debbie Caldwell's daycare. When um, Josh wouldn't show up to pick up the kids, she'd phone and I would load the kids up after all the other kids were gone. Of course, because I wanted to get on with my day and my night, so I'd go get her from work and bring her and the boys home, and that was quite a normal occurrence. Coworkers like Linda also gave Susan rides home. Sometimes they would stop at Deseret Industries, a thrift store chain operated by their church. I'd look for knickknacks and she'd look for things she could use around the house, potty training stuff, you know, stuff for the kids, toys for the kids, books for the kids. She'd look for stuff like that. Donated items, used stuff, was the bulk of what was on the shelves at the Deseret Industries store. They were sold at just a fraction of retail prices. Still, Susan joked about not being able to afford the trips. She and Josh were spending money elsewhere, though. Josh had made full-time at his work, giving them a bit more disposable income. In September, she told a coworker in an email she wished Josh would cheat on her to make ending their marriage easier. We keep making major purchases and improvements like we will stay married. I don't think he'd ever leave me. He's spoiled. 
And the other woman thing is practically impossible for him. So I doubt I'd be motivated to actually leave him. Together, they dropped $4,500 on a vacation subscription deal, which Susan insisted was not a timeshare scam. It soured almost immediately. The subscription was supposed to provide huge discounts on travel and lodging, but a promised free seven-day cruise never materialized. Feeling angry and cheated, they took their dispute to the Better Business Bureau. That got them nowhere. Josh sent an email to Susan in October suggesting they threaten the company with bad publicity. I also could easily throw together a website to slam them, even if I don't make it live yet. I could even host it on the web, but on a temporary domain. They may start to get the picture. Susan liked to read Mary Higgins Clark murder mysteries, but found herself instead focused on titles from the self-help category. She became enamored with The Color Code by Taylor Hartman. The book's premise is personalities can be categorized by one of four colors, red, blue, white, or yellow, using a multiple-choice test. She scored herself as blue, a loyal, long-suffering creative type driven by emotion who also felt insecure and moody. She thought Josh was red, a confident, logical thinker who had a strong need to be right and who put work ahead of relationships. Susan made Josh read the book, too calling it the only form of counseling he would tolerate. More and more, she exerted her independence. She started organizing girls' nights with friends and co-workers like Amber Hardman. This is the first time Amber has told her story publicly. So it worked out good. We would just go right after work. They would go to movies, usually at the Dollar Theater or out to eat. Susan made Josh stay home and watch the boys. She kind of didn't give him much choice. She started standing up for herself a little more, which is good. And she said, they're your kids. You can take care of them for a couple hours while I go out. She also started buying Mary Kay products and lying to Josh about it. She froze their Capital One credit card to prevent him from running up any more debt. She wrote this in an email. He doesn't know I send $50 to my parents every paycheck and $25 to my team member account that he doesn't know is still open. I make sure I hang out with my girlfriends and force the occasional date on him. So what qualified as a date in their fractured relationship? On a Friday night in May of 2009, Josh took Susan to a bargain Mexican food joint, then drove her out to a spot on the muddy south shore of the Great Salt Lake. She emailed her friend Amber about the date the following day. He literally parked near all the graffiti junk to watch the sunset and asked if this was good. Maybe I was too harsh. I said, to be honest, there are bug guts to look through the window and I'm afraid we'll get stuck in the mud. Or cops will come thinking we're connected to vandals. We had leftovers that he wanted to put in the fridge, so we were home by 9.30. Susan had worksheets out of a self-help book they were supposed to fill out prior to these dates. She told her sister-in-law, Jennifer, in an email, Josh refused to complete them. It's an obligation to him that he seems to hate. He wants to go as cheap as possible. I'm talking $5 pizza, grabs pop from our house, parks at the local park. We eat, he barely answers on the questions and discussions we're supposed to have on our date book, and rushes home so as not to have to pay the babysitter anymore. Their dates did sometimes lead to what Susan described as frisky activity. In June, she believed she might have conceived. She used some of the money she had set aside in a secret personal account to buy a pregnancy test. 
it came back negative. Friends, like Amber, couldn't understand why Susan seemed so set on having another child. Like, why do you want a baby so bad if you're having such a hard time? <laughs> you know? She, she's like, oh, things are getting better. That was always her answer. Especially around that time. And no, I knew things weren't getting better because we'd have a conversation a week prior about another fight her and Josh had had. Through the summer, Susan pressed Josh to rebuild the deck on the back of their house. He qualified their time together digging post holes in the yard as a date. He'd made little progress by the end of September, only getting the framing in place. The lumber sat stacked in their garage, preventing them from parking the minivan there. Susan told a friend by email that a driver had rear-ended Josh around Labor Day. He had whiplash and couldn't do physical labor. So instead, he was on muscle relaxers. We probably acted a little stupid and bought a massage chair. I think this will motivate Josh to finish the deck and move on to the basement. Josh hired out much of the deck-building work to his neighbor, Dax Guzman. My 11-year-old daughter could lift more than he could, you know. He was just physically useless. Dax thought he and Josh would be working together, side by side. Like a simple, you know, six or eight by two, whatever we were using... You know, even a 12-footer, he couldn't lift. Yeah, so we had to use braces and jacks to hold things up on one end because I was working on the other because he couldn't hold them up. And Just get out of the way, man. Just let me do this. I, I can do it by myself easier. Dax and his wife Mindy lived one street over from Josh and Susan. They had become friends with Susan through church. Josh did pay Dax for his work on the deck, but it was hardly worth Dax's time. Took longer than it should have just because he liked, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with measuring twice, cutting once, but he just would go over the plans and over and over. And I'm like, dude, I'm the one doing this. I'm the one doing the work. Just let me do it. And we would have to stop so that he could plan stuff. That wasn't the only annoyance. He'd sit there and want to chat with you about something. I'm sitting there. Either, you know, laying wood down or, or putting up one of the walls or, you know, chiseling rocks out of the ground. And he'd just sit there and, and try to chat and, like, stop. Dax told me he couldn't help but notice the extent of Josh's tool collection. But, yeah, he had, like, you know, DeWalt, everything, his compressor, his saws, his screwdriver said everything that he had was just top of the line. It was nice. Josh told Dax he had obtained most of his tools before declaring bankruptcy, essentially getting them for free. The summer ended. Susan and Mindy watched the kids play in the yard one Friday afternoon in mid-October as Josh and Dax worked on the deck late into the afternoon. We are going to leave there. You know, Josh asked if we wanted to stay for dinner and um, then it came up that it was Susan's birthday so we my wife and I, well, my wife initially, she offered to take care of the boys that night if they wanted to go out to dinner or something, and uh, he said, no, like, no, she'll cook. And we're like, wow, I mean, like, we insisted. We're like, we really, we will watch the boys, and, you know, you guys can go out on a date, and he just wouldn't have it. I thought that was kind of messed up. Susan confided in Mindy, as she had so many others, that her marriage was in trouble. She and Josh continued to argue, often telling one another to shut up in front of the boys. 
Hearing this, Charlie would often tell them, Hush. Susan told a co-worker in an email she worried her sons might turn out like her husband, or worse yet, Grandpa Steve. I'm already watching my kids for warning signs because of Josh, his brother, his dad, his grandmother. Because all of this didn't come out until a couple of years into the marriage. Josh spent much of his free time either reading technical manuals or on the phone, talking to his family back in Washington. Susan told her friends she hated the way he acted after those phone calls. Here's just one of those emails. If he has them on the phone, often speaker, he has to warn them if I, or I hope the kids, walk into the room, because they will be swearing or talking inappropriately. And it's always an hour-plus conversation. He basically has the phone on so they can be included in the room, but they may not speak for minutes at a time. Susan said she saw a significant change in Josh's behavior, for the worse, when Steve was on the phone. Any time he's talking with his dad, I'm irritated. Even if it isn't his dad, I assume it is. And I've caught myself trying not to get angry and assume he's talking to him again. He accidentally swears or slips snide negative comments about me, the church, my family, it seems, when talking to me. I think a lot because he's talking to his dad so often, who truly thrives on negative and seems to encourage it with Josh. Her friend and coworker Amber Hardman remembered one particular conversation. Susan overheard Josh talking to his dad while Charlie and Brayden were sitting on his lap. And she walked in on him, and he had been telling how Mommy was evil for making them go to church, and she was just an evil person, and they didn't need to listen to her, and they didn't need to go to church, and that all these things are happening with Josh's dad on the phone. So it almost seemed like Josh's dad was directing the conversation. Susan was furious. She quickly got mad and took the boys out and said, how dare you talk to our kids this way about me and with your father on the phone? This is just not an okay situation. And she actually took them on a drive and left for an hour to calm down because she was so upset and didn't know what else to do. And she told me she felt worried about just leaving for that hour, that she was afraid what Josh would do for her just leaving to cool off and calm down. And I said, Susan, it's your vehicle, it's your children, you're trying to better the situation, which is obviously not a good one. It's okay to do those things. You're not taking the kids, but that was her concern, that Josh would call the cops on her, that she was kidnapping the children and leaving with Adam when she was just going to cool off, and she clearly had told him that, but she was still worried that he would twist the story. Susan finally succeeded at getting Josh to join her in marriage counseling that fall. His condition? It had to be free. No co-pays, no insurance. He said any paper trail could impact their credit rating. Their bishop referred them to LDS Family Services, a nonprofit counseling service administered by their church. They made it through several sessions before the exasperated counselor threw up her hands. She told them to take a month off from counseling. During that time, Josh was to focus on living his religion with a good attitude. She told Susan to keep her temper in check. In her head, Susan set a date. She would give Josh until their anniversary in April. She told a friend by email, the clock was ticking. At this point, I feel like he's had eight years of marriage, about four years goofing off religiously and marital. I don't expect an overnight change, 
but I also don't think I should waste another couple of years or until the kids grow up to wake up one day and he's saying, never mind, and we've got nothing left in common. There weren't many customers in the West Valley City Lowe's hardware store. Most were at home spending time with family or preparing for the turkey feast to come. It was November 25th, 2009, the night before Thanksgiving. Staff were setting up displays for the upcoming Black Friday sales. Less than a half an hour remained before closing time. That's when Josh Powell walked through the door. He was alone. No Susan, no Charlie or Braden. And in no hurry. He clutched a paper ad in one hand, along with a length of hose for an acetylene torch. Josh had bought the torch earlier that afternoon from a welding supply company called Airgas. He'd told the salesman at Airgas he wanted a torch capable of cutting through steel, but didn't know much about the mechanics or chemistry. He'd peppered the salesman with questions. Airgas had been closed for a half an hour by the time Josh swiped his credit card to buy the torch. He spent about 400 bucks getting the torch, two lengths of hose, a brass regulator, and two gas tanks, one containing oxygen and the other acetylene. The kit, he was assured, would cut through metal up to half an inch thick. Josh tried to put it all together after leaving Airgas, but couldn't get the hoses to attach to the tanks. He couldn't take it back because Airgas was closed. So that's why he went to Lowe's. The staff at the Lowe's store asked Josh what he intended to do with the torch. He said it wasn't for any job in particular, he just wanted to play around with it and see what it could do. The workers took a look at what he had and told him the hose was the right one. There wasn't really anything they could do about his problem. Announcements on the store's overhead speakers counted down to closing time. He looked at paint sprayers and grabbed some batteries. Lowe's had been closed for about a half an hour before he wandered up to the checkout stand. He bought a bucket with a pour spout, which he figured would help him more easily fill the rug doctor he'd convinced Susan they needed to buy a couple of weeks earlier. Josh took his torch back to air gas after Thanksgiving. An employee told him the hoses wouldn't work because Josh's tanks had the wrong fittings. But he could get used tanks with the right fittings and have them refilled. That's what Josh did. By the start of December, he had a working steel cutting setup that could fit in the back of his van. The people who helped Josh at both Lowe's and Airgas would later tell police the encounters were odd, and they weren't alone. A couple of days before buying the acetylene torch, Josh had gone to Western Gardens. That's a nursery just up the street from his house in West Valley City. Late November's not typically a busy time for gardeners in Utah. Not much grows outside in the depths of winter, but Josh said he wanted to mend a broken tree branch. He grabbed a roll of DeWitt brand tree wrap, a Western Gardens worker told him it wouldn't do the job because the branch he wanted to mend was dead. It couldn't be brought back to life just by wrapping it in place with a $3 sheet of plastic. Josh insisted, even becoming emotional about the broken bough. He ended up buying a 50-foot roll of the tree wrap. Josh had always liked hardware stores. He'd even briefly worked at a Home Depot in Puyallup about a year after marrying Susan. He'd started taking Charlie and Braden to the free workshops on Saturdays at both Lowe's and Home Depot stores in their neighborhood. Other parents were not so thrilled. Josh usually showed up late. He had a tendency to yell at his boys and be overbearing, making them recite instructions for the projects out loud. 
He frightened the other kids. At the same time, Josh would not step in if the boys misbehaved. Store staff had to scramble after Charlie and Braden as they ran wild with scissors or nails. As Josh was on this shopping spree through November, Susan was dealing with more personal matters. She suspected again she'd at last become pregnant. In a November 9th email with the subject line, What the heck is going on with me? She described a bout of nausea lasting from Friday to Monday. She had no other symptoms to suggest a viral or bacterial bug and figured it had lasted too long to be food poisoning. I've also read that when you're pregnant, your stomach may not handle foods as well. But I'm not ever puking or dehydrated or anything, and I'm still hungry and having cravings despite being nauseous. She'd also felt body changes like milk letdown and ligament stretching, familiar indications of pregnancy. On the other hand, she'd recently experienced menstrual-like bleeding, which would seem to rule out pregnancy. So what the heck was going on? The problem persisted on Tuesday, November 10th. Last night I had some leftover pizza Josh brought home from a computer geek thing, and I felt fine until about 9.30 or so, and I just snacked a little on nuts and went to bed. Got up a couple of times in the middle of the night with a hurt tummy and nausea. On Wednesday, Susan went to a clinic for a blood test. I'm to the point that I won't believe them if they say it's negative. I'm still nauseous. Can almost set my watch to it. If it's been about three hours and I haven't eaten a huge meal or had a bunch of snacks, I'm nauseous and moody. How does a solid seven-day stretch be pinned to anything but? I just hope it's a girl. She was disappointed again. The results came back negative, though with some confusion. Yesterday, the doctor's office left me a message asking to call back about the results. I called back, and a nurse wasn't available to speak to me, but I told them I already got the results on Friday, unless they told me wrong. They were all confused and said they'd try to have someone call me back and suggested I should blood test again. I just hope nothing's wrong if I'm bleeding and pregnant. Something was seriously off with her body. She wondered if a spider bite could be to blame. Her co-worker Linda Bagley suggested she get another blood test and have the lab check for conditions other than pregnancy. She asked me for a recommendation for a doctor, so I gave her one that was where I went. And I said, tell them this is, this is not normal and they should check your blood for other things that might be going wrong because this is like the second time. And, you know, so if it's negative, tell them they should check, ask them to check your blood too. But she didn't. They just did the presidency and said, nope, and sent her on her way, and they didn't do any blood tests, as I understand later. Another of Susan's work friends, Amber Hardman, gave her similar advice. She'd asked me about it, and she thought she was pregnant. And she'd do a test, and it'd say it's negative. And I told her several times, if you feel that way, go get a blood test. But I told her, not just for pregnancy, and I kept telling her that. I said, don't just get a blood pregnancy test. Have them run your blood and see if something else is going on. If they can, might as well while they're drawing blood. Because if you're not pregnant, something is going on. You shouldn't feel sick and nauseous. Like something is triggering this. If you're feeling this way and you're not pregnant, something else. And she's like, no, no, I'm pregnant. She was like determined she was pregnant. She wasn't pregnant. Susan conceded that she had not conceived the day after Thanksgiving. Period started. I think I miscarried so early it looked like a normal period. No more nausea. Still craving food, but that could be PMS-related. 
No more milk let down and ligament stretching, etc. And good thing, too. That's why I felt it was okay to get drugs. Josh did something very unexpected right in the middle of Susan's unexplained illness. He told her he loved her while dropping her off at work on November 16th. Coming from him, the words were so unusual, so unexpected, that Susan emailed several of her friends to tell them about it. He said it as I was out the door. I almost missed it. I smiled and said it back, and he had a cute, childish smile about him. I think it was because of everything yesterday. The day before, Josh had actually gone to church. Susan rewarded him by slaving through the afternoon, staining wood for their long overdue deck, doing a mountain of laundry, and working on a crochet project Josh was eager to have done. In fact, through November, Josh attended church on three consecutive Sundays. It was the most time he had spent at church in years. His sudden reappearance at church caught neighbors like Dax Guzman by surprise, especially because he showed up in a polo shirt and black leather jacket. He'd still be wearing that jacket. Uh. <laughs> still be wearing the jacket. Ah, uh, my goodness. Latter-day Saint men typically dress for church in a suit or at least slacks, a white shirt, and tie. Susan continued counting down to their wedding anniversary, hoping for a sustained change in her husband's attitude. That single uttered, I love you, made her think maybe he'd really change. He'd pretty much have to beat me or cheat on me, or beat the children or something. I think everything else can be worked out. But Josh just kept being Josh. After blowing hundreds of dollars on a massage chair in September, then the carpet cleaner and gas torch in November, he started December by telling Susan to stop spending their money. Here's the email Susan sent. As far as not spending money, I guess assume our Christmas presents to each other will be in the form of watching the joy on our kids' faces as they open and play with the toys. And Josh's response? May as well be. On the next episode of Cold. Hi, Susan. It's Jessica calling. I did have you scheduled with the boys today at 8.40. We haven't seen or heard from you, so we were just concerned. Hope nothing tragic has happened. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up thecoldpodcast.com. Also, if Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, in other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to my team, Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley for all of their help with this project. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bonmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts.